Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 59. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 8 through 11 in the book of Judges and follow with a consideration of parables and mob mentality. In case you're just joining the program, our judge hero is Gidon of the tribe of Ephraim, and the villain of the moment is Midian. Sufficiently impressed by Gidon's diplomatic and military skills, the men of Israel ask Gidon to be their permanent ruler. He replies, quote, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But Gidon will take their gold rings as an offering, and from the 1,700 shekels of gold, he fashions an ephod, a breastplate, and sets it out at the entrance to his hometown. What this ephod is supposed to symbolize or its purpose is unclear. Perhaps it hearkens to the priestly ephod or perhaps to the golden calf, but nonetheless, quote, all Israel went whoring after it there, and it became a snare for Gidon and for all his household. Gidon lived a long life and had 70 children, and throughout his life, Israel enjoyed peace and prosperity until Gidon's death when, quote, the Israelites went whoring after the Baalim, and they made Baal breed their god. Whether prompted by the possibility of impending catastrophe or sheer arrogance, Avimelech, Gidon's eldest son, approaches the elders of Shechem with a proposition, quote, What is better for you, that seventy men should rule over you, all the sons of Yerubal, or that one man should rule over you? And you should remember that I am your bone and your flesh. It sounds like a good idea to the men of Shechem who give Avimelech some money from Baalbrit's coffers, which he uses to hire himself a brute squad. Newly empowered, Avimelech has all his brothers killed and himself crowned king by the men of Shechem. There is no one to challenge Avimelech except for one person, Yotam, his youngest brother, who survived by the executions by hiding. Atop Mount Grizim, he, quote, raised his voice and called out and said to them, Listen to me, O notables of Shechem. And he spins a parable about the trees looking to anoint themselves a king. They turn to the olive tree who demurs, saying that his rich oil brings enough honor. Who needs the headache of being king? The fig tree says pretty much the same, as does the vine. Finally, the trees turn to the thorn bush, the lowliest of the trees, who replies as follows, quote, If you are really about to anoint me king over you, come shelter in my shade. And if not, a fire shall come out from the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. And then, because the people, the masses, the hordes, whatever, are thick-headed, he explains the parable, and it is not a complimentary to Avimelech or the elders of Shechem. Only a nasty, prickly type of person would ever seek such a position, and once acquiring that position, all they do is wreak destruction. Which is proven to be true, as Avimelech's reign of three years is marked by banditry, internecine fighting, and civil war, which ends with Avimelech laying siege to Tevitz and being mortally wounded at the hand of an anonymous woman who drops a millstone on his head. But Israel, it seems, still needs saving, as chapter 10 tells us that Tola ben Pua, from the tribe of Issachar, quote, arose to rescue Israel, and, quote, he led Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried. After him, Yair the Giladite judges the people for 22 years more, a pretty good run, especially with his posse of 30 sons, who ride around on 30 donkeys. But let's not get too comfortable as, da-da-da, more bad behavior, Baal Astarte, a smorgasbord of pagan gods and goddesses and and God smacks Israel with a twofer this time, Philistine and Ammonite oppression over 18 long, hard years, and on both sides of the Jordan. The Jews cry out for help, and God says, Too bad, I did all these amazing things to you, and you do me like that? But the Jews persist, and God agrees to help. But in the meantime, the Ammonites are encamped at Gilad, and the Jews, readying to throw over the yoke of the oppressor, are encamped at Mitzpeh. But who will lead the attack? Hmm. 
Yiftach the Giladite. Well, he is a hardened warrior, but also the son of a whore, so he is shunned and rejected. And when the Giladite elders ask him to lead the men, he tells them. Fuck off. The elders persist, and Yiftach agrees, but only if they agree to make him their leader. What choice do they have? So it's on. Yiftach's first act is to parley with the Ammonites. Perhaps an agreement might be reached without bloodshed, but the Ammonites are resolute. They want their ancestral land back, the land conquered by the Jews back in Moshe's days. Yiftach corrects the record. We did not look to conquer it. We wanted to walk through on the way to Canaan, but then we were attacked. We were just defending ourselves and won. Take that sob story to the UN, the Ammonite king says, and readies his men for war. Yiftach musters his men as well as vows that if he wins, the first thing that comes out to greet him post-victory will be near offered to God. Well, what do you know? After he wins and comes home, his only daughter comes out, musical instruments in hand, to welcome her victorious father home. Oops. Yiftach rends his garments and his daughter requests two months, quote, that I may go and weep on the mountains and keen for my maidenhood. And so she and her female friends go to weep and keen. And when they are done, Yiftach fulfills his vow, and all the daughters of Israel, quote, lament for the daughter of Yiftach the Giladite four days in the year. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. <music> Mr. Jones of the Manor Farm had locked the hen houses for the night, but was too drunk to remember to shut the pop holes. Thus begins George Orwell's Animal Farm. From the first line alone, we know that, at best, the animals on this farm suffer at the hands of a negligent keeper. But don't worry, and spoiler alert, the book's really not about a bunch of farm animals. It's about the Russian Revolution. Because George Orwell's Animal Farm is a fable, and an allegory, with a heaping helping of parable, too. What's the difference between a fable, allegory, and a parable? Quick thumbnail definitions. An allegory is a story in which ideas are symbolized as people. A parable is a short story designed to teach a moral or religious lesson, and a fable is a short story in which animals or objects speaks a story to teach a moral or religious lesson. So the difference is dependent on this story. Animal Farm, like I said, has elements of all three. And being a fable, allegory, and having elements of parable, Animal Farm is arguably what Roland Barthes would call a writerly text, a text that demands readers or listeners to look for meaning beneath the literal surface. As much as the teller tells the tale, the reader or listener is in a position of control and must take an active role in the construction of meaning. So too with Yotam's fable, a cleverly woven story about a bramble bush that bamboozles the rest of Canaan's fauna into picking him as king. What a stinging rebuke he delivers in such a folksy way, but considering he was talking to farm folk, there is no question they would get it and not be pleased with the message. It's actually us city folk who have to work a little harder with this writerly text, figuring out what Yotam is trying to say, specifically how bramble bushes work, that is, how they don't provide any shade whatsoever. So when the bramble bush says that all the petitioning trees should, quote, come shelter in my shade, what he's really saying is, if you do what I say, I will eventually lead you to ruin. And later, when Shimshon the judge talks about lions and beehives, What us city folk don't get is that bees will take up residence in any old place. I have to admit that even with the active role I took in the construction of meaning, I still really don't get what he was trying to say, but we'll talk about that later. One of the better-known parables dropped by a biblical figure is Nathan's yarn to David about a poor man's lamb. It's a classic that even the most metrosexual of us would understand. In it, Nathan recounts the tale of a rich man who steals the lone beloved lamb of his poor neighbor to serve as dinner for his guests. 
David is indignant and wants the rich man punished. But what he doesn't understand is that Nathan is referring to the king who took another man's wife while the man was off fighting one of David's wars. In all, these tales have one thing in common. Rather than coming right, around, right out and delivering a stinging rebuke or sage advice, fables, parables, and allegories engage the audience, drawing them in, making them complicit in the construction of meaning. And thus, when they easily piece together the significance of the teller's words, they cannot but heed them. Or at least, if they choose not to heed the words of the teller, they have no excuse when the hammer comes down right on their heads. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend. Send them an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or you could do the social media thing and like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or you could leave a kind word in the comments section of thenextjew.com. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store. Or find TanakhCast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a kind word there. It's a small thing, really, but it will help me and help other people find TanakhCast. And I thank you in advance for that. And encourage you to come on back and join us next week-ish episode 60 when we continue with the book of judges chapters 12 through 15